Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Geek Rant, episode 362, The Longest Day, recorded June 23rd, 2019, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementop.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Drive Time Radio for Geeks. I am your host, Mark. Just Mark. That's how I'm going to be today. Mark the tired one, cockerel. And joining me this week, all the way from Mexico, um, is Miles uh, Wakeham and, of course, the, uh, the the great one, Seth Anderson. Hey, gentlemen. Hey, Mark, and welcome, Opiates. Yeah, buenos dias. So if you are watching the YouTube stream, um, the, there is no Miles because he is tethering on his cellular device and so we're conserving bandwidth and if you hear uh, terrorist activity behind him that's okay it's just a celebration of some sort yeah we still are trying to work out what it is day of the rabbit or day of the hamster or so i don't know they celebrate anything down here well you know um i wish american culture celebrated more often you know celebrated more things um but I don't know. It, I, I had a, this conversation a long time ago. Quick aside: um, that we were talking, just musing about why Americans are the obesest people in the world, and we kind of came to the realization it's because you know every restaurant we go to—a Mexican restaurant, Chinese restaurant, Thai food, whatever it is—the foods they serve are the banquet foods of their country, the the delicacy. So Americans feast twenty times a week. Every meal they eat is a feast meal. Everywhere else in the world. Um, so maybe we do celebrate, just not with fireworks. That really sounded like somebody throwing a chair against your wall. It didn't sound like... <laughs> you should try and sleep through it, mate. <laughs> uh, all right, so uh, you are visiting just because, right? Um, yeah, well, there, there's a couple of... There's there's a bunch of reasons. We're down here for three weeks. Um, we did this last year for a number of weeks and really enjoyed ourselves. Um the first week we went to Mexico City and redid a lot of the... I, I love history, and this place is so rich with such a diverse history um, that you could spend months down here and never work it out. But we were very lucky to uh, encounter a guy we met last year who's actually a retired professor of anthropology of um, Mexico University or one of the universities here. And he has been our kind of personal chaperone guide um, all over the place. He he took us through the president's palace, president's castle, basically, um, earlier than last week. And then we had spent the whole day with him out in the uh, pyramids, uh, going through, you know, ancient Mayan and Aztec cultures and all that sort of thing, working out how that all worked. Um, absolutely fascinating stuff. And then we were kind of left our, uh, to our own to spend the rest of the week um, following great painters and artist galleries and museums and all that thing. Very highbrow, you know, stuff. But it, it, Mexico City is, is one of those cities that has the largest numbers of museums and gal art galleries in the world. Uh, and no other city has as many as this place. So if you, it's not, that's the thing about Mexico. It's not as most people think it is. Um, if you've ever really been into central Mexico, you'll realize that it's completely not what the media spin it to be. And, and if you go into Mexico City um, and you stay in the center of the city, particularly areas around the, the Reforma, uh, where we were staying in, in areas like Polanco and it's stuff like that, you, you'll be living in Beverly Hills. And you'll be able to go to the highest quality restaurants for 40 bucks. I mean, who's, who can say no to that? <laughs> so, so that was our first week. Our second week, we're in a town north of Mexico City um, in the state of Guanajuato called San Miguel de Allende, which uh, is a known uh, haven of expats. And um, we're learning about this place. And it, it, it feels like you're in Madrid when you walk around the historic center. Um, it's like it, it's it's a three hour flight from Phoenix for us, and yet I feel like I've just entered you know 14th century Spain. Um, amazing uh, history and just incredible place. And it, we're only been here for a day or so, so everything's kind of new, and I I can't really say I know much to tell you about it. But on f first impressions, it's the most beautiful city I've seen in years. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, then our last week we're going to be in uh, Guadalajara. And the whole purpose of that week is to explore medical tourism 
in Mexico. My wife and I uh, were in our 50s and we realized that if we put off a lot of the you know, orthopedic for the most part procedures that, that we carry with us from, you know, our previous five decades of life, uh, whether it be, you know, uh, a sore hip or, a, uh, a, you know, a small fracture in a foot or, or in my case, I have some, I need some shoulder surgery. Uh, if we don't address that at a, in our 50s and we carry that into our later years, it's going to be not only a quality of life issue, but it's going to be way more expensive. So, the uh, cost of healthcare down here is like a tenth of what we would pay in the US for it. So we will explore medical tourism and visit physicians, doctors, get imaging done, um, get quotes and work out a game plan on what we're going to do and then head back. But Miles, I saw a story on television where somebody went to uh, Mexico to have a procedure done and they died. Yeah, I, I I saw that story too. Um, the Twilight Zone, I think it was. <laughs> well, you know, uh, people die in American hospitals every day too. Uh, yeah, that's a thing. Uh, it's yeah. interesting how that sort of you know in the eighties, um, doctors were derided for like having gone to medical school in Mexico, or you know, uh, medical facilities were considered uh, you know third rate, and and maybe they were, but today. Like you said, it's it's medical tourism. It's the whole business there, and you've talked about it before. They have to be good at it, or they don't have business, and so they are good at yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I mean, I'm a big believer in the free market. I think that if a market offers a good product, it will gain customers, and it's any time that you kind of try to manipulate that formula, it it can work for a while, but it can't work forever, and ultimately, it it sort of morphs into this. I don't know, perverse kind of economic problem. Um, you know, I mean, the crazy thing is that most people, and, and I, I, guess I, I, I guess I can say this in a general sense, most people who have a regular job and that they get healthcare with their employment, um, they never really see the, the actual, out, the physical economic reality of healthcare other than their deductible, you know, what they pay per year um, for themselves and their family. And yet uh, the employer sees most of it and the employer is trying to do everything they possibly can to reduce expenses because they're a business and that's what they do. And uh, the insurance company is is kind of looking to make their money and the hospitals want to make their money. And you, you sort of add this whole sort of mix of, ent- of um, interests together in this, in this big vat and you mix it all up and you end up with situations like, um, for example, my uh, my daughter's old pediatrician who's a physician her her husband and her two kids uh, being self-employed as a doctor one would think she'd probably be paying next to nothing for health care because you know she'd get all these like employee discounts or whatever you call those things no not at all she's paying two thousand dollars a month for her health insurance um this is, and then I know we've got friends of ours that are, are traveling with us that are paying $1,300 a month for health insurance. My CPA is paying $1,500 a month for health insurance. This is the reality of health and care for a self-employed person who doesn't have an employer covering their costs. So we're the first in line to try to find alternatives. When you're paying that sort of money, although you need adverse health care coverage, uh, when you're paying that sort of money, I mean, you go where you can go to get the best deal. And um, unfortunately, it's um, not in the U.S. right now. All right. Well, moving on, unless, Seth, you had something to add to that. No, I just, yeah. How, how, you know, for some, for a nation that pats itself on the back on how great it is, there's, there's a lot of things that are great as long as you don't pat hard enough to break the surface. Well, you know, I don't want to belabor this we've talked about this before but the the problem as as always is the case is the consumers we get what we deserve you know we get the government we we deserve we get the health care we deserve and you know americans right now want optimum care that somebody else pays for and when the somebody else pays for it that's what changes things you know miles where you're going there's almost no somebody else is there and that's why you're finding the prices are cheap because the free market comes to bear. You go there and you pay money out of your your own pocket. Everybody who goes there is paying out of their own pocket, pocket or at least the largest percentage of them. There may be some insurances there, but I, I kind of don't think so. Um, and so you're seeing what the free market would be in the U.S. if we just took 
insurances out of it. Yeah, that's exactly true. Um, the the weirdest thing, uh, you know, again, this is a kind of summation statement on this whole thing, but the, the weirdest thing is that the entire cost of major medical procedures for somebody who is self-employed, that typically in order to have a an affordable monthly um, healthcare uh, policy uh, premium, uh, the deductibles are high. So we're paying, you know, five ten thousand dollars for de- uh, per annum for deductible. Um, most major surgeries and most complete faci- uh, procedures end to end in a me- in Mexico are less than the cost of my deductible. So considering that there's no difference out of pocket for care here versus care there, I mean, one could easily argue, well, you know, if you're paying insurance, why not just pay your deductible and get it done locally? Well, that's fine if you trust an insurance company to be 100% able to cover every single thing that you need done. And we all know that never happens. There's always going to be some sort of a bill you end up having to pay on top of, you know, what was covered by insurance. So in that regard... Mexico wins and it reduces risk and I don't go bankrupt coming down here to get, you know, shoulder surgery. So I, I can't complain. All right. And Seth, so um, I have to distance myself as a good Christian uh, from your next uh, thing here, because we all know good Christians uh, boycott anything about a demon. Um, so I'm going to be boycotting this next segment of the show. Just wave at me when you're finished. Okay, so, well, you know, one of the cool things about this, there was a news story where this quote-unquote Christian group uh, got a, like, a signature thing for Netflix to take down Good Omens, which is great, except for it's an Amazon property, (laughs) and I just thought that was funny. But, you know, okay, here, you know, there there are plenty of stories out there where the faith community is just the butt of a joke, and, you know, and it's set up for a punchline. This one... I mean, you know, again, you know, if you, I think it's just slightly more to the left than touched by an angel. Um, I thought it was actually pretty good. You know, there was, you know, there's, there's God and Satan and angels and demons. They borrow from Christian mythology. Um, uh, so, but it doesn't really seem to be, you know, uh, for the most part, Christianity is left alone. It's just they use that world building to kind of set the stage, and then they go tell their own story. I Actually, I thought it was pretty good. It is based on a book, and so there probably won't be a season two, but I, it was actually pretty enjoyable. There were some twists and some turns in it, and um, I don't know, good omens. I think if – you know, there are there are certain group, there are certain segments of the uh, Christian community that I would just say don't watch this. But if you're someone who can laugh at the absurdities of the faith community and see them for what they are, then I think you're someone who could enjoy Good Omens. Okay, and if you want to go to hell for watching the show, I, I will let you do that. Um, yeah, of course, I have my tongue firmly planted in my cheek. Um, I am embarrassed by my brethren sometimes in the way that Christians uh, choose to respond to such things. Uh, if you have an objection to this sort of material, don't support it. Don't seek to have it removed. That that only draws attention to it. Well, and no, you don't even have to do that. You, you know, just explain what your reasons are and don't just say you're gonna go to hell you know that that doesn't accomplish anything you know give me your reasons why this is bad and then so that way people can you know don't don't just don't just shout at people who hold a different opinion from you you know be different in the world be cross-cultural and that also holds true for any internet forum geeks out there um you know the religious holy war between mac uh linux and windows is is more violent more there have been more deaths over that holy war than uh the uh, crusades against uh protestantism and, and catholicism so uh you know be civil people are you kidding linux would just be happy to be mentioned in the mac for- <laughs> um and I just wanted to – it doesn't have anything to do with it. In my notes here, I have a, a quote from uh, JFK's speech uh, at Rice University when he says, we choose to go to the moon and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Um, and I just wanted to have a little soapbox moment here, and, and it may end up being the whole discussion for the show, or, or it may last two minutes and we move on. I don't know. Um, but the 
the idea of doing things because they are hard um, has, I start to say fallen out of favor, but really it's become almost unheard of anymore. Um, I was having a conversation with, with my child, as I've mentioned on the show before, um, we have, uh, um, I have embarked on a journey this year to, to become a better maker of things, uh, specifically woodworking is the thing that I choose to, to do most. Uh, and I set myself a goal to make 50 things, right? And, and it was a very nebulous, basically the idea was to get myself in the shop every week, uh, several days a week doing something, learning new skills. Um, uh, honing my old skills, uh, getting better at, at making things. And of course, uh, in the, it's, it's, it's hard. Um, I have a small, uh, basement shop. It's uh, 10 by 12 feet. Uh, so I, I can't make anything big and it. And when I pack some tools in there, it gets pretty crowded. It's unair conditioned in, in June in Georgia. So it's super hot. It's in a basement. So it's super humid. And, um, you know, it's just an unpleasant experience. I'm, you know, just yesterday, I spent um, probably six hours down there standing, um, doing a dirty job with goggles and a respirator and ear protection on, um, sweating through. I, I wear a you know a woodworker's apron. You've seen it. It is waxed canvas. So if you've ever dealt with real canvas, you know it's thick and coarse, and then it's waxed, and so it's it's very water resistant. I sweat through it to the point where the sweat from the the underside of it came through and saturated the outer side of it. I was that hot and dehydrated. My hands got cramped up and and my youngest daughter asked me you know why are you doing this you know do you really need that garden bench that you're making why don't you just go to walmart and buy one and i quoted president kennedy to her which of course being a 10 year old she had no concept of but i doubt my 16 year old would either because education um i said not because they are easy because they are hard doing something that is hard is its own reward as is its own, uh, you know, trials. It is the, the only way you get better at something is to do something you can't do. Um, I think I've also mentioned I've been taking guitar lessons for a couple of months now, and you know, it is hard. My hands hurt. It is unpleasant, uh, and I don't particularly need to play the guitar. You know, at at forty seven years old, that I'm not going to get good and become a professional musician. It that the goal is to do something that I don't know how to do because it's hard. Because I don't know how to do it. And I think that, um, you know, I'm an American, so my worldview is largely American. I try to think globally, but I fail because I'm an American. Um, I think that America used to do things because they were hard. Long before, you know, Kennedy, who I'm quoting here, uh, this world was built on people. The pilgrims set out from another country to cross an ocean, to um, settle a land, to subdue a wilderness, to murder an endogenous people, indigenous people, um, we'll, we'll skip over that for a minute, because it was hard. These were people who had a, had a life, maybe not much of a life. Most of the pilgrims who came here didn't have a great life in England, but they came here to start a new life for the challenge, for the freedom, for the experience of it. And this country is founded on people um, doing things because it was hard. And I, I feel that we've lost that. Maybe everybody who hits late 40s feels that we've lost something that they feel important. But I feel that we are losing that, maybe not have lost it, but are losing that as a society, and that it's all about the easy. It's all about the quick. It's all about the cheap. And nobody does things because they're hard. So having just you know vomited the mouth about that, I didn't give you guys any preparation about it. What do you think about that just on the surface? You go on this one, Seth, because I've got an answer I can, I can whip out as well. <laughs> Um, well, you know, I think there's a lot of truth to that. You, we're taught, um, especially um, the people who are younger than I am. And again, this is just as a generalization. There's always, you can always point to an anecdotal thing that it's not true. But we are taught that it's ours by birthright. And I should have the easiest this. I should have the cheapest that. I should have the best this. And it's mine give me what I'm due. We feel like it's owned us, you know, whereas people older than me, for the most part, were, hey, the world is out there and you can get anything you want if you go work for it. And somehow that became, you can give everything your kids will, they'll want if you work for it. So they kind of took that work ethic 
but they didn't pass it down to their kids. They were too busy working. And I mean, there's a lot of problems in this country. And a big one is the disintegration of the family. Whenever we think it's the school's job to educate the children. We think it's the church's job to teach salvation. We think it's the government's job to teach savings, to teach taxes, to teach all that kind of stuff. When the actual truth, it's the family's job. It's the parent's job to train their children up. It's the parent's job to teach them savings, to teach them about taxes, to teach them how to be a citizen in the world. And because the family abandoned it, because we wanted more money and we wanted a bigger house and we wanted a boat and we want all this stuff. And you know, hey, some people have to work because they need to make ends meet. I understand that. And you know, it's hard, but for the most part, we don't need all of the stuff that we want and we're pursuing our wants rather than teaching those who come after us how to work and get the things they need. And, you know, we've, some people would say we've already reached the tipping point. Others would say it's fast approaching, if not upon us, where if we don't do something now, you know, the culture is already in shambles and it will totally collapse. So there's my unprepared answer. I'll let you go, Miles. Well, um, uh, yeah, I, I agree with most of that. Uh, I, I would also, I want to add a little statement, and I, I'm going to be paraphrasing somebody, so if I get this wrong, uh, forgive me. Um, it was told to me by somebody who professes to be a Freemason. So I'm not a Freemason, so I'll be open on that. And I know it's one of these secret societies or whatever, but anybody out there who is, who might be able to validate this. Anyway, this is the statement. Know yourself and you know the world. And that's, I heard that the other day, and I thought, yeah, I get it. See, people are afraid to look at themselves inward and realize what they're capable of and to, to allow themselves to, to expose themselves, whether it be if they're say, artistic, they expose part of their art, their poetry, their dance, their music, their whatever, to the world, that's a very painful experience for, for an artist because you're exposing your soul and you don't know how people are going to react to it. Mark doesn't know how anybody is going to react to his woodwork, whether they're going to look at it, poke fun at it, or they're going to look at it in awe, they're going to look at it critically, they're going to look at it positively. He doesn't know, but he's going to put it out there, right? Why? Because when he does, he's going to learn a little bit about himself. And it wasn't necessarily, the, the, although the task of achieving that, the, the ethic of work, the ethic of achievement has so much psychological value to all of us, it's when you give it out to somebody and they see it and they poke fun at it or they commend you for it or they tell you how to improve it, that's when you start to learn about who you are. Know yourself, you'll know the world. If we continue that, we expand, all of us expand upwardly, all of us expand society upwardly, we become, we evolve, we become advanced. You're not going to do that sitting on your phone, right? You're not going to do that sitting on the couch watching Netflix. You're not going to do that in a um, habitual state, a state where you've already done all of the hard work you did it in your 20s or your 30s, and now you're just sort of skating, right? You're just sort of going through the motions because you get a paycheck, and you got to pay the rent or the mortgage or whatever, and then you're going to do it again, rinse and repeat. And maybe there's a beer in it at the end of the week, or maybe you get to see some time with the family. And you know that if that's become the the, the flat line of society, nobody out there is ever going to advance. And the only time we're ever going to advance is when we take risks. And it doesn't matter whether you do that as a you know from a right brain perspective in art or you do that in a left brain perspective maybe in business or in creating software or creating architecture or helping advance law or, or chemistry or whatever your, your your profession is until you expose yourself to criticism you expose yourself to risk and you expose yourself to failure you will never advance yourself and we have a, a society today that has been habitually told, almost hypnotized, that it's okay not to do that, not to upset the apple cart, not to do anything that you can just go on Reddit anonymously and make your point. And, and you know, you take no risk with that. And if that's become the, the um, currency 
of society, we're never going to advance. So I commend Mark for what you're doing, you know, in terms of going out there and making woodwork and showing people what you can do and taking the risk that they might like it, but you're still out there and you're still pitching. And that's what we all should be doing in whatever our, our chosen profession or hobby or, or you know, passion is. And if we stop doing that, we stop. We, we, we're like sharks, right? If we're not moving, we'll die. Yeah, and honestly, the, the sharing part of it is really the least important part to me. The, the idea is to just to do something I don't know because I don't know it. That's the reason to do it. I don't know how to do it. Um, and I encounter this in the workforce every day, you know, people will come to me and, and ask a question, you know, how does, how does why work? I don't know. Let's find out. And so right there at my desk, we start experimenting and I, and sometimes I wonder why didn't they do that? Why did they come to me to ask the question? Because it's easier. If I have the answer, then I can just give them the answer and they can go. And and in the workplace, there's efficiency to be considered. If I can give them a two-minute answer, that's great. But I find it rare to find in people, even really smart, intelligent, articulate people, the desire to just find out. You know, it, and it's like, well, if if we don't know, we'll we'll go ask our, you know, support representative. Maybe they can give us an answer. Or maybe they can, but wouldn't it be better to just to know? Because there's a difference between understanding, between knowing a fact and understanding a concept. And when you discover it, you understand it. And and I, I don't think I don't think I'm unique in that desire, but I don't see it as much now as when I was a kid. When when you're a kid, every everything is about discovery. And I, I think that part of the maturation process, unfortunately, is losing that inquisitiveness, that wonder. Um I, I I started, yeah, I'm not even going to go there, Um, but there, I just, I wonder if because we haven't exercised that discovery muscle, that experience muscle, that struggle muscle, if, if we're breeding it out of our society, I mean, is that, is that possible? Am I just talking nonsense? It's possible. Yeah. It's. It is very possible. And, you know, the thing is, because if you go now, everything is so streamlined in in the workforce. Oh, you've got to be more productive. You've got to be more productive. Let's not teach somebody from the ground up how to do something. Let's give them the five minute, you know, here's how to clue something together. Look, somebody else already did this script. Just take it and tweak the thing. And so you end up with this stuff you don't know how to do. You only know how to look at a script and maybe tinker with it a bit. And But that's a lot quicker than spending months and months and months of learning something. Because we've got to get up and going now. We don't have the time to learn from the beginning. I mean, man, I remember I used to want to learn about something. And so, you know, I would go to the library encyclopedias later, you know, just Google a thing. And then that takes me to the Wikipedia page and then go down to some of the other links and see what's out there. And the next thing you know, I've spent half a day learning, you know, about the battle of Midway or the battle of lady golf. And I mean, I'm learning, you know, uh, all of these things that I just, I wanted to know. And so I just immersed myself in that research and, you know, it, it does seem to be a lost art because society doesn't value knowing stuff anymore. Society values, Hey Siri, Hey Google, you know, and let them do all the work and rather than spend some time and go learn about it, you know, I so eh, I don't know. Darn kids today. Well, it, it, it's the spectator versus the participant at, attitude too. I mean, you can you can get away with a lot of things by sitting on the sideline, spectating about it, and then being the Monday morning quarterback, and then pretending like you were part of the action or you had something to do with it. Uh, you know, our society allows for that somehow. Um, at the same time, you take a huge amount of risk if you're the participant. If you're the creator and you fail at it, you show your, you know, you open the kimono, right? You show yourself to your boss that you tried something and it failed. And I'm sorry, boss, I wasted the company's time and money, and I'll, I won't do that again. And you know, 
it, 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 people don't want to take that risk. They don't want to go out there and say, um, if I do this and I fail at it, then, you know, Joe in cubicle three over there might get my job. Or when the promotion comes up at the next, you know, uh, uh, work anniversary, uh, I'm not going to be eligible because they'll look back at what I failed at. Better I just don't, you know, shake the foundations here. Better I just go with the flow and participate more as a spectator and just do the minimum level I need to do to not expose myself to criticism and I'll get through and I'll be fine I'll be a team player and I'll you know it doesn't work and we've proven that to see in dysfunctional large corporations that you have to have somebody who's willing to take a risk and that means somebody has to be willing to say we don't know about this thing let's go and find out and the 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 time we don't have that, we go back. We don't go forward and evolve. Um, and it's not about whether America wins or China wins or Brazil wins. It's got nothing to do with that. It's got to do with whether you win. Because I, I guarantee on your deathbed, when you're looking at you know your final half hour of your life and you're looking back on it, it's not going to be how much money do I have in the back. It's not going to be how what was my pay grade or what was my promotional level at Corporation X that you're going to care about. It's going to be your family because they're your legacy and they're who you love. And it's going to be look back at yourself and to self-audit all those opportunities you had that you didn't take. And if you don't have an answer to that, then you're not going to end well. And now is your time you can change that. Now's the time you can have that answer. And the only way you're going to do it is to go out there and try something. Try and better yourself. Think out of the box. You don't have to have a career change for it, but just think a bit differently. And do something that you nom normally wouldn't do, like, you know, as you're doing, Mark, with your carpentry. Yeah, I, I, you mentioned the failure thing. I hadn't really even considered that part. I, I, I think I have a different relationship with failure than most people. Um. I, I embrace failure uh, in a way that, you know, maybe I've only ever seen on the Mythbusters where when for that, what, 12 years or whatever that show ran, they got excited about failures. Um, and and I that's kind of the way I've always approached it. We have a thing hanging on our refrigerator now that one of our kids brought home from school or something. I don't know. Uh, and it's just a, it says uh, uh, mistakes are proof that you're trying. And I like that sentiment. That's okay. Um, but I, I celebrate failures as learning. Because if you if you just stop when you fail, that's when a failure is a bad thing. But that's not what failures are supposed to be. It's supposed to be data, experimentation, learning. Um, my current woodworking project is uh, making a couple of just garden benches. Nothing special. Ten two-by-fours laminated together, make a bench. Um, I'm on my second one right now, which is turning out way better than the first one because I made the mistakes on the first one. I failed on the first one. And one of the things that I've learned in this journey so far is how to cover those mistakes, how to recover from mistakes. That's a better way to put it. You don't want to cover the mistakes. You want to restore that which was broken, right? If, if you, if you break something, if you cut a, an angle wrong, if you, if you gouge the wood, you don't cover it, you restore it. You don't cover your mistakes. You recover from your mistakes. And each step along the way, you learn what not to do. Uh, um, Albert Einstein, not Albert Einstein, uh, uh, Thomas Edison, uh, when somebody had asked him if he had any results, the quote was, results, man, I have gotten lots of results. I know 10,000 things that won't work. Um, and he also famously said, you know, uh, uh, two weeks of experimenting can save you 10 minutes in the library. Um <laughs> And I, I've, I, not that I claim to have the genius of Edison, but I like the idea. The idea is to experiment, to find things that won't work. Um, the reason WD-40 is called WD-40 is because the first 39 formulas didn't work. And so, you know, embrace failure, celebrate failure. Don't, don't mire yourself in failure. So, Miles, when you brought that up, that people are afraid to fail, it's funny because I hadn't even considered that. Yeah, maybe that is what the reason is, but I've never, I, never is a strong word. I can't remember ever not doing something because I was afraid to fail. Because yeah. failing is, is, that's the expectation when you do something hard. You're supposed to fail. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't have the, 
safety net or the cushion around them to allow themselves to fail though and that's often economic um, I can't take that risk because I really need this job it's going to pay my you know mortgage and my health insurance and keep my kid in college or whatever it might be uh, they're not in a position where they can take risks um, you know we may call them conservative I'm not talking politically I'm talking financially uh, but you know if you don't have the ability to spend the time working in the in the wood shop um, learning a new musical instrument reading uh, history um, if you have no uh, ability to do that because all you're doing is you're supporting your expenditure need by work 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 to make more money to be able to support your lifestyle then some people don't have that freedom at least they don't believe they have that freedom and that adds to their fear of doing it when they fear that they may they should have been working they should have been earning they should have been doing so and so it's not everybody but a lot of people are in that position um i, I would them, say it's a very small percentage of people who don't have time to try something new um because you know when you talked about being on your deathbed the one thing nobody will say is i wish i'd watched more television and, and most people true. most people have some time they're just choosing not to do useful things with it yeah, we yeah. use the lack of time as an excuse. Oh, I can't do that because I don't have enough time. So, I mean, I totally uh, buy that. And, you know, and, and if you think about it, what are some of the best experiences you have had? Whether, you know, with your, you were going somewhere and you missed the turn and you got lost and you ended up somewhere else and you had a great time there. You were with some friends and, you know, and you were going along and the car broke down and that adventure became the stuff of every, you know, Saturday night get together for the next 30 years because it was so much fun because you didn't do because you didn't get the expected result. You got something so much better. But along the way, because we were ridiculed whenever we did something wrong and messed up or, you know, we were told, you know, quit following, quit doing that and, you know, come to the real world, stuff like that, whatever the reason, however it was done, we've been... You know, in, in now I'm not saying somebody took a belt and just started wailing on you, but it's been beat out of us to not even try anymore. Yeah, well, you have to change that. I mean, it's yeah. okay to say, oh, that's sad and just accept that as a reality, but I don't accept it. I mean, if someone tells me I need to go get my shoulder looked at, I'll go on a plane and go to another country. Few people that I know are willing to take that risk. But I know for a fact that by doing it, it will serve me better. So I'll, there's no risk to me because I've done it before. So I, I guess I advanced, right? The first time I tried to go into another country to get medical help, I was petrified because I had no idea. I thought, you know, this would happen or that would happen or I, you know, no, nothing like that happened. It was just like going to the regular doctor. I just had to get over my fear. And then I advanced up to the next level saying, well, let's see if we can do something bigger. Um, the same is true of like playing a musical instrument. You know, the first time you pick up that instrument, you're going to sound really horrible. <laughs> it's going to happen, but you're going to have to do it a thousand times before you start sounding good. That's what advancing cap. That's why we celebrate great virtuosos because they've done it tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of times and they never stopped learning. But we don't want to do that. We don't want to take the first step because it's scary hard or we could just be watching the latest black mirror episode or we could be you know doing whatever it's a, yeah you could be doing that and probably a bit of it you should because we all need a bit of downtime but don't let the downtime dictate your life make the downtime be just that little bit of support at the end of the day for having a rich and meaningful life you know i heard a uh a great illustration in a sermon I was listening to online today. Um, this guy was talking about how this uh, violin virtuoso was playing his final performance before he retired and it was just moving and it was just one of the greatest performances ever. And right as he walked off the stage, this beginner uh, violin player ran up to him and said, sir, I would give my whole life to be able to play that good. And he turned and looked at it and said, young man, I gave my whole life to be able to play this good because he wanted to do that 
he put the effort into it. We say, in, and again, this is an overall generalization, man, I wish I could, but then that's all we ever say. Whereas there are the few people who say, I am going to do that. And, you know, they take the crappy job. They give up on, you know, once in a lifetime experiences because they know it's two hours a day doing this and then another two hours a day doing this and then another two hours a day doing that. And all of a sudden they're at the top of their field and everybody goes, oh my gosh, I wish I wish I could play like that. No, no, you don't. Because there's lots of things we could give up if we wanted to. You know, we don't need you know, Hulu, Netflix, Amazon, Disney, CBS, all access, you know, and then the list goes on. You don't need, you know, Starbucks and Wendy's and McDonald's and Chipotle. You know, you don't need the iPhone 7, the iPhone 8, the iPhone 8G, the iPhone 9, the iPhone 9S, the iPhone 10, the iPhone 10X, the iPhone 11. We don't need all of those things. Get one until it's so old it doesn't even turn on anymore and say, okay, now I'll get another one. And then I'm going to get last year's model because it's a lot cheaper versus, oh, well, it's only an extra $20 a month. Well, guess what? 10 things that are an extra $20 a month, that's over $2,000 a year. That would be a heck of a vacation. You know, that would be a heck of a retirement savings if you started early enough. So, you know, we if we could be honest with ourselves, this would solve a lot of our problems. So I, I guess I would just sum this up by encouraging uh, you, the listener, find something that's hard and do it because it's hard. Don't don't worry about the reasons you can't do it. Do it because it's hard. We we spend our whole lives looking for the thing that's not hard, avoiding the hard. Do the hard. Do the difficult. Uh. You know, I, I mentioned that I'm a, a contrarian uh, in, in a lot of different ways. When, when I was 18 years old, graduating from high school in 1990, um, I had a number of scholarship opportunities um, presented to me, uh, some academic, some music, performance, whatever. Um, and I was, you know, choosing where I was going to go, what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And I chose the school that offered me the smallest scholarship because I wanted to prove to them that they were wrong. Instead of going to the one that offered me the full ride, I chose the school that offered me the smallest scholarship because I wanted to, to, to show them that I was worth more than they were offering me. And it was the hard thing because I had to work where if I had taken one of the other ones, I wouldn't have had to work as much. Um, it was harder for me. It was probably a mistake, honestly. Um, I, um, you know, ended up not making the grades, taking six years to graduate instead of four, working multiple jobs while I did all that. But it that built character in me that nothing else I think could have done. Maybe I would have had an easier life had I gone the other right way, but I don't think I would have had a better life because all my life I have chosen the thing that is hard and I have ran headlong into it because it is hard. A am I a success story you want to emulate? Well, that's up to you to decide. But I think that the world is a better place because people do things that are hard. Yeah, I, I could add one thing to that. Um, you don't, uh, you don't just get successful. Everything's an incremental journey, and it doesn't mean that you should set your sights low, but you should be willing to say that, you know, can, for example, could you compose Beethoven's Symphony Orchestra? I don't know. Could you? The question is, have you tried? And the, the, the more important question is, probably the first thing you should do is learn how to read a sheet of music or learn how to play a piano. And once you've achieved that, then you go to the next step of trying to go further towards that goal. It's like a light on the horizon that you don't know whether you can reach, but you every every journey begins with one step and you have to start somewhere and that step isn't going to get you there. So know that you aren't going to get there on the first step and that you're going to have to make multiple steps and multiple improvements. And each part of that is a journey into understanding who you are, understanding how you think, how you react, um, how your personality works, how your biology works that will get you towards that goal, but never stop taking that step. And if you do that and you never stop moving towards that goal, you will learn whether you could do it. 
And you're not going to know that if you never get off the couch. You just reminded me of a story when I was 20-ish years old. I was struggling to write a song um, back in those days. I was trying, I, I fa- fancied myself a musician and I was complaining to another musician friend of mine that said, when I, when I write a melody, it's, it's always very simple. And I was frustrated by that. And he didn't even say any words to me. He response back to me was dun, 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 dum. <laughs> <laughs> the simplest melody in the world. And it's the one everybody talks about. So do the thing. Uh, so the only thing I have to ha- have left to say is Seth, what happened this week in history? All right, Mark. Well, I wanted to let you know, in case you weren't aware, that on June the 21st, 1948, oh, hey, that was the longest day. Ties in awesome with the title. Sorry. Uh, The first stored program ran. So the first program on the world's first stored program computer, the Manchester Small Scale Experimental Machine is run. The first program was designed to test the computer's reliability and ran for 52 minutes, performing (laughs) 3.5 million operations and that happened this week in history and now mark back to you that can't be true 3.5 million operations in less than an hour and we and we complain of the spinning wheel (laughs) (laughs) how much does uh how much does your uh how much does my crappy phone do i mean man i couldn't even i should have looked something like that up a prepared co-host would have information like that well if you're running um a moderately recent phone you're in the uh certainly millions of operations per second range possibly billions or even trillions of operations per second um wow 1948 and yeah the, i didn't even mention it the longest day june 21st we are now officially headed into uh the fall uh or as if you're listening in australia the summer the, the longest day here has, has happened. Um, it's only going to be getting darker sooner from here on out. So Woo-hoo. that's a thing. What, what is that? The equinox. Solstice. Equinox. Which is it? Solstice. Sol- okay. Equinox solstice, is yeah. equal. Right. So that's yeah, equinox it happens in spring and fall. Solstice right. happens in summer and winter. Got it. Uh, all right. So, <laughs> Seth, I'm not even going to try. Introduce this. All right, this is just um, an utterly stupid, time-wasting website, stealthboats.com, for you to see all pictures of boats boats that are invisible to the naked eye, stealthboats.com, click on any of the images to enlarge it, and you're (laughs) very great. I get it. (laughs) Yeah, all right, it got me. (laughs) And remember, all images are copyright. Yes. Uh, (laughs) I, I, you know, I was lamenting to Mark the fact that I don't surf the web much anymore. And he goes, well, you have this thing called a job. And I was like, yeah, that's right. I do. So I apologize to everyone. I'll try to come up with some off the wall, wacky stuff in the future. So interestingly, I was reading uh, a book. Uh, I think, I think I may have mentioned it already, but I'm going to mention it again. Uh, it was uh, called the uh, skunk works. It was about the, um, uh, basically the skunk works, uh, operation at, um, um, I'm blanking on the name of the company, Lockheed uh, Martin, Lockheed. That's it. It was before it was Martin Lockheed. Yeah. Uh, oh. who built the SR 71 and the, the stealth fighter, uh, not the stealth bomber that went to a different company, but they invent, they worked with, um, stealth technology on boats and they found that, you know, once you have that shape, that radar defying shape, um, it doesn't really matter how big it is. And so they built these uh, boats. They were sort of half size, like battleship mock-up things. They they weren't actually functioning boats. They were just things you towed behind another boat. Um, and it worked too well. When you were flying overhead, you could see ripples of water and then a hole in the water. And then, uh, so it was an invisible boat, which was a hole in the water and that stood out. And so you can't make an invisible boat apparently because there's a hole in the water where the boat should be. So (laughs) interesting thing. And, you know, it's, they spent, I don't know, hundreds of millions of dollars to figure that out. If they had just asked some, you know, um, gunnery sergeant, you know, will this work? He'd have probably said, no, that's stupid. But instead they spent millions of dollars to find out that there's a hole in the water. Interesting book, Skunk Works. Check it out. Um, it's all about old stuff now because they had to wait for it to be declassified. 
Uh, so this is the part of the show where I tell you how you can feed back to us. Go to elementop.com, click the contact us button at the top of the page, fill out the world's hardest captcha, then fill out the form there uh, on the page uh, and click the submit button. Let us know what you think. What is the hard thing that you have done? I want to know. Better yet, what is the hard thing you're afraid to do? Tell me that. Then tell me why you're going to go do it. Go do the hard thing. Great, great nations, great things, great uh, men come from doing the hard thing. So, audience, I'm, I'm putting it to you. I'm challenging. I double dog dare you. Find something Ooh. hard and go do it. Um, like, for example, committing to pledge $500 a week on patreon.com slash elementop. I know that's hard, but make that commitment and find a way to do it. Do the hard thing. Go to patreon.com slash elementopi and pledge $500 an episode. You can do it. I believe in you. At least get off the couch and do $1. <laughs> okay. I'll settle for a dollar. Um, but no, do the hard thing. <laughs> All right. That's it. Uh, we'll see you next week, Seth. Miles, thanks for being with us. So, Miles, you, where will you be next week in your world travels? Guadalajara. Uh, but I don't know where. I'm, uh, I'm still trying to work that out. But we'll wing it. We always do. Oh, man, I could not vacation like that. I, I can't go on vacation without a spreadsheet. And you're like, eh, I'm in Mexico. We'll figure out the rest. Yeah, um, that's the fun part. You learn things that way. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I, my Everybody else in my family would be fine with that. But I would be having a mini stroke over in the corner going, I don't know where we're staying tomorrow night. Um, well, see, that's why they can be fine with it. Because they know you've got, you're there to worry about <laughs> all the details. <laughs> Airbnb is your friend. Yeah, maybe that's the hard thing I need to do. Learn to loosen up. Yeah, do the hard thing. Just get in the car and go one direction, <laughs> and then run out of gas. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for being on the show, Miles. Thank you for being here. Even though you are a world traveler, uh, we'll see you next week. Next week will be our last show for a month or so. We're taking a break um, just because I'm tired and I want to do this anymore no I, I do enjoy doing it but i need a break uh so we're gonna take july off maybe part of august we'll see how that goes uh but uh so we'll be here next week so don't miss the next week when you're sure to hear seth say whatever man <laughs> you're probably too old to remember show teasers where they used to do that they would do that at the end tune in next week when you'll hear batman say um now they say stay tuned for scenes from our coming up. I don't want to see scenes from it. I'll see it when I see it. But anyway. All right, everybody. Thanks for hanging out with us. That's it for this episode of The Geek Grant. And remember, pay for what you like.